Welcome to the sag After Foundation's Conversations podcast. The sag After Foundation believes that contributions made to our culture by performing arts are not only valuable, but also essential. And so we provide free programming and services like this podcast to support them. If you'd like to learn more about the sag After Foundation or access the full library of our conversations or make a donation to support this podcast, please visit sagaftra.foundation. That's www.sagaftra.foundation. Also, subscribe to our YouTube channel and follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at SagAfterFound. Thanks, and enjoy the conversation. Hey, good afternoon, everyone. Um, as the nice lady told you, my name is Janelle Riley. Thank you so much for coming out today for this conversation with Juliana Margulies. Uh, since entering our living rooms as Nurse Carol Hathaway on ER, this is an actress who has continued to give really breathtaking performances, not just on the small screen, but in films like City Island and Evelyn, also on the stage. And now, of course, every week we get to see her in The Good Wife. Please welcome Juliana Margulies. Yes, thanks. <laughs> Thank you so much for being here. Uh, you know, most shows don't traditionally get better. Your show started off terrific, and now several seasons in, you guys are getting even better and better. Yeah, I mean, yes, that's a that's completely the writing. Yeah. It's Robert Michelle King. I think they just stepped up the bar this year in a way. I mean, I was always proud of the show, but. They were confronted with the loss of a character, and instead of shrinking away from it, they sort of jumped on it and turned it into a bit of an event season. And it's been a lot of fun to play. It's been very meaty. And we're going to get to the loss of that character, um, but I want to start at the beginning of your career. When did you know you wanted to be an actor? Um, Well, I really knew... I guess it would be my freshman year in college. I had always acted as a kid, and I came from a very artistic family, and we weren't allowed to watch TV, so we put on plays all the time and, and you know used our imagination to entertain. But then when I got to college, I was cast in David Rabe's In the Boom Boom Room. And it was a big senior play, and I was a freshman, and I somehow got cast as a go-go dancer. Um, and I didn't have a lot of lines. I had a few, but I... Uh, I just remember this feeling opening night. I was in my little cage with my boots on. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and I got this overwhelming sense of belonging somewhere. It was really overwhelming. And I sort of, it just all fell together after that. And I realized how passionate I was and the feeling it I had collaborating with these other actors and all about the you know, when you're rehearsing and getting to know characters, I just fell in love with it. And so I decided to pursue acting from that moment on. Did you consider go-go dancing? Maybe that's (laughs) what you fell in love with. Yeah, I wish I was more coordinated. (laughs) (laughs) Had you already declared a major at that point or? Well, at Sarah Lawrence, we have focuses. (laughs) (laughs) It's a... A fellow, a fellow alum. Um, it's a it's a Bachelor of Arts degree, so I I felt it was really important. Once I once I focused on the fact that I was going to be wanting to act, I thought the most important thing I could do is learn everything about my craft, and that meant film history and English literature and authors and art history, and I wanted to come out a well-rounded 
person also because what if acting didn't work out? I thought I should have something to fall back on. <laughs> uh, you mentioned that you came from a family of artists, but how did they feel about you pursuing acting as a career? They were very supportive. I mean, I think they always knew that I was... Um, I, I knew that I didn't want to starve my whole life and that I would give it a go as best I could. And if that didn't work out, I really was going to do something else. So I think they felt as long as I was happy, that was always their motto. As long as you're happy and doing what you love, go for it. And I sort of gave myself a five-year plan, thinking if I didn't, wasn't able to pay my rent and my health insurance, that after five years, I'd go back to school and probably, I actually wanted to be a lawyer um, or, a, or a psychiatrist, or, well, psychologist, maybe not Freudian, but um, one or the other. So I thought I would be still young enough to be able to go and get a degree in something else that I could make a living at and enjoy doing. But it's sort of a year out of school, I was managing to, pay my rent and my health insurance and one job snowballed to another and you know, I landed ER quite young and uh, and you know it, it I was I got lucky uh, did you actually study acting at Sarah Lawrence do they teach a specific method I did study acting there's two different methods at least when I was there um, there was the workshop department which was more environmental theater black boxes no props crazy sort of new plays and then there was the big arena theater, which was musicals and a proper stage. And I opted, of course, for the black box because it was, to me, more sort of avant-garde and interesting and dark. And I studied for four years. And then I, um, I also took classes in New York. That was part of the program. And I was able to intern in New York with, with um, the Ensemble Studio Theater. Oh, wow. And so by the time I graduated, I, I sort of felt like I knew the lay of the land in the city, in New York City. And, um, and you know, what was great about Sarah Lawrence was you could be doing a production and at the same time I would send off my resume with a note and my headshot to casting directors and agents and say, you know, I doubt you'll come to Bronxville, but if you want to, I'm doing Bomb and Gilead. <laughs> and it actually paid off. Really? So I think you have to be very diligent and sort of map it out. I'm curious, what sort of career did you envision for yourself? Did you think you'd be a stage actor or you just you just wanted to work? I had no I had no actual uh, um, idea of what it meant to be an actor uh, in film, television or theater. I sort of always thought of them as one and felt that it was important to learn all three uh, skills because it is a very different skill set. And uh, so to me, you start in theater because that's, well, the opportunities for me anyway were much more um, uh, gratifying and available. It's easier to get a play than a TV series. Um, and then I sort of let things happen as they did and it was amazing. I mean, my first professional job actually was a film, which is how I got my SAG card. Uh, and then that that awesome, the euphoria of being like, I got a SAG card, and then I need to pay $900. I mean, it was just like, <laughs> you know, and you think you get your first movie and you're never going to have to waitress again, and then to pay your dues, you go back to the bar and you're like, oh! <laughs> Um, but it's good, you know. It's it makes you. It makes me so appreciative of where I am now, and and I, I love everything about the process of getting to where you want to be in that moment. Because I still, I'll be doing it for the rest of my life. I mean, I hope I'm still trying to get to the next level when I'm seventy, and then eighty, and then ninety. I think that's what 
having a career in in the theater, film, and television does. It allows you, as long as they still want a grandma in it, you can keep going, you know? <laughs> uh, that first film, was that the Steven Seagal epic, Out for Justice? Indeed it was. Yes. <laughs> actually, actually, a movie I love, to be honest. Really? <laughs> I do. That, like, like, Steven Seagal <laughs> was making good action movies once upon a time, and uh, that was yeah. one of them. I had no idea who he was when I got that role. Really? I was like, history of Mr. Gold. Um, <laughs> but you know what? I'm, I'm grateful to him because it got me a bigger agent. It got me my SAG card. And, and it really, except for that one little stint in between that movie and um, my first uh, professional theater gig, I only went back to bartending once. <laughs> How did you get the movie? You had an agent already? I had an agent. I had a tiny agent. Um, he was really an agent for models. And he decided to go into the acting world. So I was his only actress, and um, he sent me out on the audition, and I, I got it. So I got are, lucky. Are you good at auditioning? You probably I love auditioning. Do it. You love it. I do. <laughs> I, 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 I understand when, uh, even now, I always say, well, if they need me to audition, I'll audition. How do they know what else I can do? You know, you get, especially when you're on television and you play one role for a long time. And, um, you know, unfortunately, the the vision of many, many um, producers, directors, and casting directors is that, I mean, when I was on ER, all I got offered were nursing gigs. After. I thought, are you kidding? That, you know, now I, I constantly am getting lawyer stuff. I get it. It's where I am right now. So if they need me to audition to see if I can speak in an English accent and, you know, and I don't know dance on my head, I'm happy to show that if I choose, if that's what I'm like, if I like the project. And they usually go, well, have you had any of those epic, awful auditions we hear so much about? Oh my God, of course. <laughs> but you have to. I mean, I think everyone should have a terrible audition. That's part of, that's part of the, the joy of making it is having the worst audition ever and getting to talk about it. I mean, you know, it, it, it's not the also, I've had terrible auditions where I've gotten the part, and I've had amazing auditions where I don't get the part, and that's just yeah. part of the, the game. Uh, what was your worst audition experience? <sighs> where do I start? Um, you know, honestly, I think it was for this um, medical show, <laughs> strangely, um, that f I think it was Fox was doing, and it was, at, it was at the Warner Brother lot, and I happened to be out here visiting a boyfriend who was on a TV show. And I was this New York theater actress and I went in and I just really messed up the, the audition. I just kept saying, let me do it again. Let me do it again. And it was this big emotional scene and she's yelling and, and I just didn't, I, it was so mortifying that every time I said, let me do it again, it just got worse <laughs> to the point where I was looking and they're like, you know, doodling in their thing. And, and then the audition after that, the next day was for ER. You're kidding. So there is wow. sweet revenge sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> and that show got canceled after three episodes. <laughs> I dodged a bullet. Absolutely. Uh, from what I understand, or I, I mean, you've talked about this, but your character, N.E.R., was supposed to die in the pilot. She did die in the she pilot. She did die. Yeah, she came wheeled in on a gurney. Um, I was a guest star. I'd been hired as a guest star. And... Um, she commits suicide. And the way Rod Holcomb, who was the director of the pilot, filmed the whole thing was through George Clooney's eyes, through Doug Ross's eyes. They had been obvious, there had been mentioned that they were romantically involved. And so you sort of see her coming in and it heightened the character. 
Because suddenly when they tested it, the audience was going crazy about those two people and they wanted to know what, what their relationship had been. So I'll never forget George, I had gone back to New York, I was gonna do Life, Homicide, Life on the Street, which um, I had done two episodes of, and Tom Fontana, who's still a dear friend, said, will you come and be on the show in Baltimore? We can't pay you much, but you know, you'll, you'll be on the East Coast. And I was like, great. And then I got this phone call from George saying, don't take any other jobs, I think you're gonna live. <laughs> for taking the time to care to call. You know, I don't know how many actors would bother. But he did, and, and he said, you know, he, you know, I, I, I was not privy to any of, the, any of the testing or any of anything, and I wasn't with a big enough agency that they really cared because they just thought I was, you know, a guest star, and then I died. So no one was telling, was finding out the skinny on the show. And he said he was sitting there, and he heard Steven Spielberg during the screening of it say to Warren Littlefield, who was the head of NBC at the time, let's keep that one alive. <laughs> and somehow um, I, I ended up in a bit of a coma, I guess. I forget. It was 20 years ago, so I don't quite remember what happened. I would, yeah, and I, I came too. I just love that in addition to everything else about him, George Clooney can give life. Yes. <laughs> Yes, <laughs> literally to characters and 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 people. Um, so you did get the call, like we want you to come back. What's the, what's that call like? Oh, it was exciting. I mean, I was you know 25 years old and and living in a you know walk up rental in New York on Second Avenue and 53rd Street, truly the loudest corner you can imagine. Um, and I get this phone call saying they'll pay for your airfare and they'll give you some money to find an apartment for the first month and you'll get paid. It was nothing, but it was more money than I ever had seen. And you get to be on this big show. We didn't know it was a big show at the time, but I had loved doing the pilot so much and I'd loved the cast so much. It was such a great experience. My only fear was going to LA because, um, I, you know, I'm a New Yorker and I, and I had, um, a little trepidation coming to a city where I had to drive everywhere and <laughs> and uh, that dissipated quickly the second I realized I had a parking spot on the Warner Brother lot. <laughs> um, pulled up in my little my little rental car. I was like, really? This is great. And then I, I was it was fantastic because it was the beginning of something none of us had any idea. So it was very innocent in a strange way how it all started. And um, I think none of us had any clue until the season was over how big it really was because we were always work at work. And in LA, you don't, you know, we're, I live in New York now, so I understand how everyone feels about the show. You know, I just go to the drugstore and someone tells me their opinion. <laughs> but, it, but in LA, you're always in your car, so yeah. you don't have that one-on-one -on -one contact with your audience as much. Uh, was there like a moment when you realized just how huge the show was in the pop culture vernacular? Well, for me, um, I, I grew up in um, a lot of different places, but for eight years of my life on and off in England, and God bless you, and the, the um, hiatus, during the, my first hiatus, I went back to see my girlfriends there, and I'll never forget getting off the plane um, I was always hassled at customs because I had, you know, long curly hair, and I was I play the guitar, so I'd have my guitar with me in a leather jacket, and surely I was a, you know, drug addict or something. So I was always pulled over um, by the customs officers, and I remember walking off the plane and 
And he said, well, it's Miss Hathaway, <laughs> something like that. And I was like, what? And he said, I love your show. And I realized then and there that it had gone overseas. <laughs> something was about to change. How did it change not only your life, but your career? I mean, I imagine offers started coming your way, even if they were for nurses. <laughs> oh, a lot of, no, I mean, that the first few years um, of VR was such a drastic change for me. Um, the first movie I did was a movie that I'm uh, so uh, proud of called Paradise Road that Bruce Beresford directed. Um, it afforded me the chance to go and do small parts in movies I found interesting and go to different parts of the world because I suddenly, you know, could get a little financing for the film um, in ways I, you know, had never thought possible. So it it helped launch my career. Absolutely. There's no other way to say it. Um, and there's something about doing a television show. You know, I was doing um, a Hollywood Reporter roundtable with uh, five other actresses the other day, and, and we were talking about how wonderful it is when you're on a TV show. And yes, it's a lot of work, boo-hoo. But <laughs> you know, when I I just went on hiatus last week, and I can enjoy my time because I know I have a job. In Jan mm -hmm. in July, I go back to a nine and a half month job. That's a luxury most actors, I don't care how big you are, you never know when your next job is gonna come. And even though ours is yearly, it's still huge. It's a huge luxury for an actor to say, actually, I'm just gonna clean out my closets and go take a vacation because I have a job to go to. There's there's no anxiety about that. And um, you also get to grow with a character in a way that you never do on, on stage or in film because there's always a beginning, a middle, and an end, whereas television, I mean, I love playing Alicia Florrick. I love finding out who this woman is, and there's so many layers to peel, and it's really a luxury. Um, it can be grind, a grind because obviously we put out so many a year, and um, it's every day. But it's also a great muscle. I love exercise. I always feel bad for guest stars because they have, they come in, they only <laughs> have seven or eight days, and they have all this dialogue, and they're not used to it. Whereas for me. It's an, it's a second language, you know, and I learn lines quickly, and and um, it's a muscle I use every day. So I always feel like it's always every day is a chance to make it better. Uh, speaking of guest stars, you guys have the most amazing guest stars also on ER. Is there any time you've ever been intimidated by a oh co-star? All the time. I mean, it is. Um, it's a slow day on our set when there isn't at least two Tony winners, you know, <laughs> on the set with me. Um, I, I find almost it's it's an incredible. Uh, I'm embarrassed by how many incredibly talented people come to our show, and the reason I say embarrassed is because I always feel like, you know, they should all be heralded and and given more. <laughs> money. I, it's, I do. I, we have these incredible talents and then there's always these, you know, well, it's top of show. That's what everyone gets when you, but, but you get to be on the good wife. And I always feel like, no, we should, you know, we get them on our, yeah. they're what, what's making our show so great too. So let's all enjoy. But that's another story. And one day I'm going to change that law. <laughs> um, but I, I'm, I mean, my first day with Nathan Lane, I, I literally, I was like, I am so apologize. I can't talk. I'm in awe. I mean, every day there's someone else who I, 
I just um, feel very blessed to be able to work with. And you learn from great people. You know, you learn from good and bad. I, I actually learn a lot from actors who aren't very good. Really? Oh, my God, yeah. I think everyone does. I mean, if you... Acting's reacting, right? So when you have a really good actor in front of you, it's like playing tennis. You know, I use this all the time, but it's true. If the ball is hit hard to you and you just put your racket out, you'll hit it hard back. If a ball is hit flimsily to you, you gotta run and get it and then you can barely get it over the net because it's in a... So when you're working with a great actor, it raises the stakes, you know? It's one of the reasons why I was so heartbroken that Josh Charles left. He's one of the most nuanced actors I've ever worked with. And we just, it was like music, the two of us, you know? And it was the same with George on, on ER. When you find that person who elevates your performance, you want them to stick around. <laughs> um, but so I always see it as uh, Jeffrey Tambor for me is one of my favorite guest stars. And he is one of the most underrated actors, I think, in our union. He he blows my mind. And, and he asked me one day, he was um, the judge, I think, has a very difficult role on our show because it's a big day when you're in court and they shoot all of us first mm. because there's so much coverage. And then at the end of, a, you know, it'll be 12 hours before they turn around on the judge. And that's a long day to have your close up last. And and he um, he was doing this scene and we were all up at the bench. And afterwards, he's very funny. And uh, as if you didn't know, but afterwards, he, he he'll say, uh, they'll say cut and he'll go, how was that? How was my performance, Josh? You know, and he'll ask everybody how his performance was. And, you know, and then everyone jokes around and Josh would say, you know, well, I thought it could have been a little this or a little that. And I just stayed very quiet because truthfully, I was in absolute awe of the performance. And he said, Juliana, why are you quiet? You didn't like it. You didn't. And I said, you know, honestly, do you want me to tell the truth? Because I don't want to be corny here because I know you're all joking around. But I just was watching you thinking how lucky I am to learn. So it's it's just it's just a, a blessing to have these people on. You've worked with amazing ensembles. I mean, I know the ER ensemble, I believe won four SAG Awards. Yeah, for yeah. the ensemble. Yeah. And uh, your first season of ER, you won the Emmy. Yeah. Not bad for a character that was supposed to be killed off yeah, right. in the first episode. And strangely, I, I had to look this up because I didn't believe it. You're the only series regular on that show to win an Emmy. <laughs> None, no one else from that. Guest stars have won. Uh-huh. But that blows well, my mind. Well, that's a shame. They were all so good. But if that is the truth, it is. It really? is, yeah. Anthony Edwards never won. Never won. Well, they all should have. I mean, <laughs> <Agreed>. you know. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, well, that's, yeah. Hmm. <laughs> I don't know what to say. <laughs> I, I'm like, I feel like I'm That's making a, you responsible for that. Why is that? I know, that? now I feel bad. <laughs> I feel bad. I don't know why. You know, I think it was also a very different time at the Emmys. It's the landscape has changed so much. Um, that was a very different time. Yeah. Uh, and I think, I think, you know, it's also random. I mean... Richard Burton never won an Academy Award. So, yeah. uh, you know, as much as it's amazing and it's great for the day after when you get flowers and congratulations, <laughs> it's all very nice. But truly, it's very, I think it's a very tricky, slippery slope because isn't, it's not like running a race. You know, if I ran two minutes faster than so-and-so, I deserve that medal. 
you know, but yeah. how can you compare <laughs> its apples and oranges? So I think it's it's gotten a little bit out of hand in the, in the importance of what it means to actually walk away with the statue. Um, and yet somehow we celebrate those moments yeah. and I'm appreciative for all for for the times it's happened to me but I also am very aware that it's a fleeting moment <laughs> you know uh, I'm curious this is this is so utterly random but around this time I think it might have been after your first or second season on ER you hosted Saturday Night Live oh no it was my last season on that ER. was your last season oh yeah that did you waited it until was- the end it was February, well, yeah, it was February 2000, and I left in April of 2000. Oh, wow. I only, no, I only remember it because we did a skit, and I, I had Noah come in for it where we said, they said, what, are you crazy? You're leaving ER. And it was this whole skit on, on the new show I was doing, which was, um, and I, Noah came in, and we were vet, veterinarians. And they're like, well, there's no difference, and we were, like, reviving a chipmunk. Um, that was one of the most fun nights of my life. And you, I have to say, you're one of the all-time best hosts. Thank I, you. To, my, to this day, people still say "simmer down now." Simmer down. Now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I had real. I had a really good time, and I think also because I had been away from stage, I had done a play in in my on my hiatus, but it couldn't be a full fledged play because I didn't have enough time. But um, it was just being back on stage. I mean, I, even now I'm on hiatus now, and I've I've already done three re- readings just to be on stage and read a play. I can't go and do it. But I think um, I just miss I miss the theater. I do. Um, <laughs> SNL is like being on in theater. And yeah, from what I understand, yeah. and you don't even get your script till that morning. Right. Sometimes. Yeah, that's true. But that's you, true of TV shows too. <laughs> I'm used you, to that. Do you think they were surprised by how funny you could yes. be? Yes. I actually do think they were because I think. Um, we really had to talk them into hiring me because I was the suicidal nurse on ER, you know, like, <laughs> she does drama. And um, we literally had to talk them, my, Lauren Michaels, we had to talk them into hiring me. And I really think the only reason they hired me was because I had just walked away from this lucrative deal and it was in the news. So suddenly I, I had some sort of maybe people would watch. Um, so when I went to the first read through with everyone, um, I mean, I think very few people know that I grew up in England, so I have an English accent or that I, you know, my, I was in France when I, from the ages of one to three. So I speak French, you know, like little things that no one, they all just thought I was this nurse with crazy hair. So, um, when I got into the read through, I was so open to do yeah. fun things and they, they were shocked. I mean, you know, the bird family skit that I did. I don't know if anyone knows it, but... They've copied that since, and you guys were the first ones to do it. They have copied it, yes. I think they have copied it. But, I mean, I still get people to this day, and it's 14 years later, asking me to chew their food (laughs) in in restaurants. Um, And it went, you know, and I I love being funny. I I somehow have always ended up in drama, which I love, but... um, it was fun. It was just uh, that, you know, let someone else tell me what to do and do my thing. I, I had a ball. Uh, you brought up the lucrative deal you walked away from. I believe it was $27 million Yep. for two years. It just, it pains me to even say that. Uh, <laughs> and I was, not too long ago, I was watching an interview you did way back when this was going on with Howard Stern. And he just, he just could not get over yeah. that you turned it down. Well, it's interesting. You know, it's 14 years later and, and, and we're still talking about it. Yeah. So obviously it's, um, it's something that affects people. Um, and I understand that. I do. And I can imagine thinking how crazy it is. But at the time, um, 
You know, I was in my early 30s. I didn't have a husband or children, or and I was out in L.A., and I was homesick for New York, and my family was there, and John Robin Bates had just written a part for me in a new play of his that was going to go <laughs> be at Lincoln Center, and I just... It, it made sense to me, mm-hmm. and um, and I'm really glad I did it. Yeah, uh, I think I think that my life took a turn where I got to get out of the limelight a little bit and go and do passion things that no one had any say over. And I um, I never looked back and never really thought it was crazy till people kept telling me it was crazy. <laughs> You know, I used it, um, I, I got to do a, a commencement speech. I got to, I, I frighteningly shook while I did a commencement speech at Sarah Lawrence College in 2010. And I and I talked about it because um, I wanted these students who were coming out into the world to make decisions based on what felt right for them and not what they thought other people thought was best for them because that's always worked for me. Whenever I've gone with my heart, um, it's been a success because I'm happy. And I think in order to do that, you need to be secure, but you need to have a good family behind you that supports it. And, and you need to not be afraid of the unknown. And I, and I think so many people are, and money seems to be something... I, I love having money. I really do. I'm not... Um, and I love having worked for the money, but I don't ever want it to rule me. And I always want to know that I'll be fine if I have to sell my apartment and go live in a rental somewhere, that my being and my heart and my spirit will be just fine. It might be harder, but um, it's important to know who you are. And I don't think money defines you. And I think that's why people had such a harsh reaction to me. Um, it was sort of a very strange, like, what is... You know, who does she think she is turning down that money as if I thought I was something? And really, it was to go and do this John Robin Bates play at Lincoln Center. I mean, I had no... I wasn't delusional. I wasn't thinking I'm going to now be a huge movie star. That wasn't ever... Well, no, you went and did a play. I went and did a play. <laughs> I mean, and then that, from there, I went and did a miniseries in in Prague because I loved the book, The Mists of Avalon, and it fell into my lap. And Uli Adele, who was the director, happened to see, I don't know, some poster of me and said, that's Morgane. And I said, well, I want to work with that person. Like I never, it was about going to experience life, mm-hmm. not about being afraid. So I think in the end, it always comes around. And I've had incredible positive feedback from yeah. people who have told me that it inspired them to live their dream and do what they wanted to do. And um, and it worked out pretty well for me. I don't, you know, I think you have to just know yourself. I'm yeah, sure. <laughs> I was personally thrilled because getting to see the character where I felt she belonged. Uh, uh, which character? Carol, sorry. sorry. See, oh, we're still on ER. Yeah, right? sorry. You gotta move forward. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's only been 20 years. Come 20 on. 20 years. Um, so yes. I was actually thrilled. I do have one other sort of ER question. Okay. Uh, was there anything you had to pass on or turn down in that time? I, I, I believe I heard you were offered face off and couldn't do it because of ER. I don't remember that one. I do remember Anaconda. (laughs) 
that that's still gotta hurt that you missed out on that. Yeah, I, instead of doing Anaconda, I went and did a. Um, well, now I'm just gonna sound like a. I mean, this is so stupid. I mean, even I think looking back, I'm like, oh my god. I went and did a, a writer's workshop in at as as an actress for the writers for the film the filmmakers workshop at the Sundance Lab for for three weeks. Um, because I only had three weeks or whatever it was and I was asked to go and I had the best time. Yeah. I met so many incredible people and to help filmmakers, you know, find their characters and yeah, I guess I uh, I could have been, I could have done Anaconda. I mean, that, I, you know what? I made up for it. I did snakes exactly. on a plane. <laughs> uh, you mentioned The Mist of Avalon, which I just want to touch on because it's, again, this amazing cast, Angelica Houston and Joan yeah. Allen and this feminist retelling of the King Arthur legends, uh, but it kind of was on your shoulders. You were the lead of this yeah. big, expensive miniseries. What what was that experience like? Oh, heaven. To this day, it was my favorite job I've ever had. Really? Yeah. Well, first of all, I was getting paid. I used to, I was a horseback rider um, for nine years, a, a, a hunter jumper. And I had to give it up when I was 16 because it cost a lot of money and we didn't, and you need a, you need a real support group for it. My mother's a ballerina, so she would never even come to a horse show. She's like, oh my God, your body, you're going <laughs> to, she couldn't, she couldn't bear the idea of me falling off. Um, and I had given up horseback riding um, at a point where it was college or go and join the circuit. I mean, I, I had to make a choice. So there I was, first of all, I loved the story and I'd grown up with the, the King Arthur legends, but I had not ever read the book um, from, told from the women's point of view, mm -hmm. Marion Zimmerman's book, Miss of Avalon. So when I read it, I was just, I loved it. I loved that whole period. I, I mean, it just to me was a fantasy I wanted to live. And, um, and then I got to ride horses. They paid someone to train me how to ride their horses, which were these incredible stunt horses from Spain. And I, I, you know, I, they put me in long flowy dresses and I had, got to have my English accent and, you know, kill a Saxon every now and then and <laughs> gallop on the fields in Prague and work with Angelica Houston and Joan Allen and Samantha Mathis. And I, you know, we were in Prague for three and a half months and they were six day shoots for me. Most people, you know, I was in sort of everything and I aged from 18 to 50. So, you know, having gone from scrubs and um, clogs to <laughs> let, have, having someone take a chance on me that, that I could play this part was so fun. It was such a fun time. I hope you kept some of the costumes. No, they were all, they were all, they're all in a, some archive somewhere in Italy. They were all hand-sewn silk from Italy. It was amazing. I mean, what would I do with them? <laughs> Walk Cold around the globes. subway in my, yeah. my room. <laughs> Uh, I want to talk about some of the movies you did during this time, actually, because I, I skipped over the Newton Boys. Oh, yeah. But you got to work with Richard Linkletter. Oh, another gem. Yeah. He's he's one of the all-time greats. I mean, I just have such fond fondness for him, respect for him. Um, he just marches to his own beat, you know, and and people get it, finally. I think they didn't for a while. But um, I, I think he's a true, true artist. And that cast, it was like Matthew McConaughey and Ethan Hawke. And Ethan Hawke. And I'm still really good friends with Ethan. And, and you know, he said something great to me about, um, he's obviously still very, he still works with Richard all the time. And hopefully I will too one day. But he, there was a huge, all the fires in Austin. Um, and Richard's entire 
uh, home was burnt down. Everything he had built this, he had a screening room and all his stuff, you know. And I said to Ethan, is, is he okay? Is, is Rick okay? Because I can't imagine I, I was there when he was building it. And he said, you know, he's amazing. He said, it's just stuff. I'm fine. My family's fine. It's just stuff. Wow. You know, and I, I really... You know, when we all leave this earth, we don't leave with any stuff. And so if you can, I, I think it's such an important thing to wrap your head around. Not that it's not tragic, but someone like him who cared about every bolt and nail that he was putting in his home, you know, is to just say that was great. And you worked with Angelica again in The Man from Elysium Fields. That's right. I did get to really work with yeah, her in it. Um, but that was a trip. I mean, I, and I didn't have many scenes. I had one little moment with Mick Jagger. Um, but I didn't really have any dialogue with him except in the makeup room one day. It was awesome. <laughs> he was asking me all about acting and, and I sort of was talking to him and and then I left to go back to my trailer and suddenly I was like, oh my God, I just gave the Jagger acting tips. <laughs> <laughs> Only because he asked, not because I was filling them out to Mick Jagger, but yeah. All right, who took longer in the makeup chair? You were Mick Jagger. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, the John Robin Bates play you mentioned, was that Ten Unknowns? That was the Ten Unknowns, oh, yes. Okay. And you also did, I believe, the vagina monologues? I did the vagina monologues in New York, and then I opened them out here. Oh, really? Um, yeah, which was really interesting to be yeah. on stage in L.A. That was fun. And I did it with um, Rosie Perez and Julie Kavner, which was just a hoot and a holler. Um, <laughs> Um, way to get yourself upstage, to be on stage with Rosie Perez. <laughs> she, was, she was fantastic. Uh, yeah, and then I, I did um, uh, another play called Intrigue with Faye with Benjamin Bratt, which was really fun, which I had workshopped in Poughkeepsie, New York, at the New York Stage and Film. Yeah. Do you have a favorite of mediums? I mean, getting in front of a live audience on stage or, you know, having the camera? Well, I love them all. They're very different. You know, I mean, on stage, there's nothing like gra that instant gratification of when you're on stage and that intense fear, <laughs> that adrenaline rush of being in front of people and, and, and hearing it right away and being able to move through an entire two hours and tell a story and have control over it where no editor can cut it or change the close-up or whatever it is, you know, because when you're on film, you just never know, are they going to get this or is it going to be on them, you know? So um, it's lovely on, on stage to be in control of your performance in the end. Um, but I love them all, you know, eight shows a week is exhausting to do in the theater. And I think after, you know, four months of that, you're looking to go and do TV. <laughs> You know, the, the immediacy of the, the quickness of television, you know, it's nine pages a day of dialogue and you've got to be on it. And it, it's one of those things where I feel like you have to really rely on your training mm -hmm. because you can't always prepare the way you can for theater and film. You can never prepare the way you do for theater and film in television because you don't have the time. There's no luxury of time. There's no rehearsal. What they call a rehearsal is basically blocking. You know, you'll stand here, you'll stand here. It's not like we get to figure out the scene together. So you have to rely on your instinct. And oftentimes I think my gut instinct is so much better than my overthought, overwrought instinct. Mm. Because you bring to it this rawness that otherwise would be polished. And so I, I love that too. You know, I don't know. 
I, I do. I, and, and film to me is, it's like a vacation because you, it's like, oh, we're going we're gonna to film two pages today. <laughs> Okay, okay. How long will that take? <laughs> 15 hours. <laughs> it's shocking. Yeah. Um, and and it's, a, it's great. It's always, whenever I'm on a film set, I'm like, oh my God, this is so fun. Because it doesn't seem like work to me. How do you choose your film roles? Uh, you made two movies around this time, both of which I love. Uh, you made Evelyn with Pierce Brosnan oh, yeah. and a wonderful movie called City Island, which every actor should see. Yeah, I have a feeling most of you have. <laughs> and I'm wondering, was in, in those cases, was it on the page? Was it the people involved, the combination of both? Well, with Evelyn, um, I loved that story. I mean, I just, uh, and I was shocked when I, Bruce, and it was Bruce Beresford, who I had worked right, with before. And he called me and he said, um, it's not a big part, but I need, I, I, I need you in this movie. <laughs> and I was like, I'm, I don't care. I'm, I said yes before reading it. <laughs> Um, it was Pierce Brosnan and Stephen Ray and Aidan Quinn. And I got to go to Dublin for three months and work with Bruce Beresford, who, mm-hmm. you know, as far as I'm concerned, I would go and read the phone book for him. I, I think, um, I mean, one of my favorite films of all time is Tender Mercies um, and Driving Miss Daisy. I mean, he, he's, the, he's one of those filmmakers, yet again, never even been nominated for an Academy Award, yet all his movies he makes. Yeah win them yeah. and when they're actor, you know, so it's such a strange business. But um, that movie was, uh, watch, I think truly Pierce Brosnan did one of the best performances he's ever done in that film. And it was something that was very true to his heart. And it was lovely to be with all these Irish men in Ireland. And they, they showed me their Ireland, which I, I, it's such a beautiful country. So that was a, a thrill. And then City, City Island is, I think, my favorite film that I've ever done. Um, and I'd worked with Andy Garcia before in Man from Legion Fields. And that was uh, a big surprise because I just had my baby four months before. And um, I got a phone call from Andy Garcia saying, I need a wife. And I said, what? (laughs) (laughs) And he said... "Um, Marsha Gay Harden has been attached to play this role and her she her schedule's conflicting and she had to pull out. Will you do this movie? And I said, well, send me the script. And I read it and I loved it on the page. Loved it. I had no idea it could be as good as it was, but I loved the character and I thought, no one's going to hire me to play this girl, so I better jump while I can. Um... And we had a really good time. Raymond DiFiletto was awesome. Everyone in the cast, I mean, Ezra Miller is going to be the biggest star oh, of everyone. And it was just one of those um, incredible experiences where, you know, you're, I, you're sitting there pumping in your trailer. <laughs> My baby was four months old. And I thought, is it worth this? You know, and the trailers were the size of this box here. And, you, and then I'd get to set and I was like, it's so worth it. It yeah. was such a fun romp. And I thought the movie was really lovely. Yeah, people love that movie, especially, yeah. like I said, actors. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> interesting segue, but to go from there to Snakes on a Plane, <laughs> which I'm sorry, I love this movie. Uh, I love ghost Don't shit. apologize. Okay. <laughs> you can love it. <laughs> I mean, it does what a genre movie should do. It has a sense of humor. But when you got that script, I mean, what was your reaction to that title? <laughs> well. Um, 
When I got that script, there was a note that said Samuel Jackson is um, <laughs> attached to this. And uh, I read the script and I was like, guys, seriously? <laughs> and then I went and met the director, um, who's sadly since passed away, but, um, and he was so, oh my God, I'm blanking on his name. I am too. It'll come to me. I'm so sorry. He wasn't, he was a DP, uh, uh, second unit action director. Um, and it was one of those things where I thought, you know what? How can I say no to a crazy movie called Snakes on a Plane with Samuel L. Jackson? Like, you, that's never going to come around, ever. <laughs> and no one's going to hire Juliana Margulies for that role. Like, that I was in that movie still to this day. I'm like, huh? <laughs> and we had a blast. Yeah. I mean, it was actually really fun. Um, there were a couple things shot in that movie that weren't in the script, and they shot afterwards that both Samuel and I were like, you know, certain things that happened in the bathroom that weren't in the script that they posted at later. But um, it has a huge cult following. Oh, yeah. And my favorite thing is, like, we went to Colorado um, over Christmas, this tiny rinky-dink town, and went to, the, to rent a car, and the girl goes, Snakes on a Plane, my favorite movie. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, right on. <laughs> awesome. You and everyone in Japan. <laughs> Someone's got to do it. Did you, do you, do snakes bother you at all? Because yes. I imagine, okay, but you. Sam, Samuel had in his contract that they, he couldn't be within 25 feet of a real snake. <laughs> And so I just said, I'm with him. <laughs> I, I, I wish I wasn't afraid of snakes, but there's something about them that you, they're slit, I, I yeah. just can't. And they'd be like, want to come and pet? I'm like, no. <laughs> I would run the other way. I just, they're not cuddly. No. So all the snakes you were around were fake. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, but actually what they did discover on that, um, too, was, and they had tons and tons of snakes and snake wranglers, but you would shoot one thing with real snakes, and then they would say, cut, let's go again. Do you know how long it is to wrangle, you know, 700 snakes on a plane? I mean, it was like, so, so they started using fake ones because we couldn't, we yeah. couldn't, we didn't have the time. <laughs> snakes don't take direction. <laughs> Not like he was a heel. Yeah. Um, badly trained snakes. I think I heard that during the making of the film, or maybe in post, they actually talked about changing the name. And Sam oh, Jackson really? was like, no, I signed up for snakes on a plane. God love that man. Me too. I wouldn't have done it. What was it going to be called? Just snake? I mean, how could you? That, I think that it was, was like the whole point. Was unfriendly that was... skies or something like oh, that. Just, yeah, yeah, exactly. No. He was right on. Always grab onto someone's coattails that know their stuff. <laughs> Uh, were you, again, prepared for, like, when that movie came out, the internet sensation it was? People just loved this title and talking about it. I, I wasn't aware of that until just now. Um, <laughs> I'm not a big internet um, person when it comes to anything I'm in. So I, I actually don't know about it, but um, I, just from people's reactions. But I And it was, you know, it was a big hit for a couple weeks. I guess it was number one movie, so that was nice. Always fun to be in a number one movie, even if it's called Snakes on a Plane. <laughs> um, but, but I wasn't aware of it. I'm glad it 
I'm glad they had a good time. <laughs> and the, the spinoffs, a good friend of mine was hired to write Snakes on a Train. <laughs> Is actually, that true? It's, I'm dead serious for that company. Um, what's, what's the company in Valencia that makes really cheap, super quick knockoffs? Asylum. Asylum, thank you. Yes, it actually came out before Snakes on a Plane because they made it in like two weeks. <laughs> Wow, did it do well? No, it's terrible. Oh, okay. <laughs> like, even for a movie called Snakes on a Train. And by the way, there's only one snake. Um, it's, it it's, um, it's the only movie, well, there's two movies that I begged my father not to see. My mother, I, she'll see anything and she'll tell me to be quiet and go see it. But Snakes on a Plane and Ghost Ship, I said to my father, really? I'm begging you not to see them. <laughs> Yeah, because he's so highbrow. Um, he's such an intellectual that I knew. <laughs> and, he, you know, I, when I started out, his three words to me were, don't do crap, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and so I was like, Let, you know, that and, and the the, um, the heroin scene in The Sopranos. I was just going to ask. I was like, let's not watch yeah. that. You're my father. But, um, yeah, those were the only two he ha- happily didn't see. How did The Sopranos come to you? Did they? I mean, the character was named Juliana. Weird. I know. <laughs> um, I don't know exactly how it all happened, but David Chase sent me a note saying, I've written a character for you. Would you like to do it? And I said, well, of course I would. Can I read it? And he said, well, we don't. They never gave full scripts. They only gave um, your pages. And it came, and there was this Juliana Skiff, her name was, and um, spelt with the same way as mine, with two N's, from Rockland County, which is where I'm from. <laughs> um, there were a few things, like there was a movie scene with me and Michael Imperioli, and in the script, and with, with, with The Sopranos, what I loved about it was you had to say everything was... Like Pinter, if there's a comma, there's a reason there's a comma. If there's a dot, 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 you have to follow exactly that punctuation and how it's done. And even in the movie theaters, it was like, she's eating red vines. And it was about the red, they couldn't, uh, Twizzlers, they, we don't have red vines in New York. Um, it couldn't be Junior Mints, it was mm. Twizzlers. And I, I started to get really, because that's what I always get when I go to the movies. So I, was, I, I was like, are you? following me like what's going on how wow um anyway he sent me and I was very nervous to to take it um because I had never done sort of gratuitous sex or um that kind of I wasn't completely naked but there was some you know I was barfing um in a garbage can in my bra and panties high on heroin. So when I read that, I was like, is this just gratuitous to get me in a bra and panties? And I remember Griffin Dunn um, is a dear friend of mine. He's possibly one of my favorite people on the planet. And I called him up and I said, I don't know if I should take this job. I mean, he's got me crawling naked. Well, I'm in a bra and panties, and then I'm vomiting, and I'm playing a heroin addict. And and he wrote this part for me, and I'm, and Griffin, (laughs) he said, don't be an idiot. Just take the part. (laughs) And I'm so glad he did, um, because I just needed someone that wasn't monetarily involved or Mm -hmm. had any kind of, you know, um, personal reason for me to do it or not do it. He was coming as my friend who's an artist and a director and a producer and a writer. And he was like, Juliana, you'll be so happy you did it. And one episode led to six. 
because um, I was only supposed to be in one. I didn't know that. Wow. Um, I know. I always seem to go through the back door. <laughs> that, that happened with the R. I mean, yeah. I was supposed to die. It happened with homicide life on the street. I mean, um, which is great. That's you know that means writers are paying attention to their actors. So mm -hmm. that's nice. Um, and then the part. It was really a, a wonderful job. Were you looking to return to TV at this point? I mean, or was the idea of a weekly series, uh, you know, you sort of enjoyed just coming in and visiting? No, I, I, was, um, I was definitely open to a series. I just, for me, really needed it to be in New York. Mm. Because what I learned on ER was, you know, I used to say I work in L.A., but I live in New York. But when you're on an hour show, you don't. I mean, you live, yeah. eat, sleep, and breathe there. And I knew that even at the time, I wasn't um, married, but I knew that if I were to get married and have children, I wanted to bring them up near my, close to my parents and, and have a community around me that felt like home. So for me, that was what was important was to find a project, whether it was, you know, cable, network, whatever it was, to find something good that would shoot in New York. Uh, and I know you, in 2008 you had a series, Canterbury, uh, wait, Canterbury's, Canterbury's Law. Law. Thank yeah. you. I, sorry, still thinking of Miss of Avalon. Yeah, there. no, that's okay. <laughs> Which uh, was you played a lawyer. Yeah, <laughs> I did. Um, that was the pilot was directed by Mike Figgis. Oh wow! And um, it was a thrill to work with him. Yeah. I, he was such an interesting guy. I mean, there's moment there were moments where he wasn't. You know, it was just me and him and the camera, and he's pushing me. And I actually love it. I always say, direct me. Do you know? I I love it when a director directs me. I I always think if I if I don't agree, I'll I'll say so. But I might not know what you think. You know, so show me a different way. But he was he was awesome, and I actually really loved that that character. The yeah. problem with that show, well, first of all, there was a, a writer strike, right? Which I was so grateful for because I did six episodes, very pregnant, and I was in very high heels, so I was. My back was, I was constantly like, oh, I can't, I can't move anymore. Um, so it was, it was put on hold for while the writer's strike was happening. And then, and then it got canceled, but there was no showrunner. They kept switching showrunners and it was for Fox and Fox was just changing over from firing one guy and hiring another one. And there was just no support behind it because I actually thought it was a very interesting character. Um... <laughs> And they've sold it as a miniseries, which is oh. so strange. So it's all over Europe as a miniseries. Um, so I guess that's a good thing in terms of, you know, that it, that it has a life to mm -hmm. itself. But it never quite got off the ground the way it should have. Is that heartbreaking when it happens or just part of the business? Um, you know, honestly, it wasn't because also I... I I was so overwhelmed with being a new mom that the idea of having to go back to work right away like that, and I just wasn't, um, and, and there was just no true leader. Uh, there was so much conflict in, in what was going on behind the scenes that I, I, I was okay to let it go because it wasn't, there, it wasn't a copacetic environment. So when The Good Wife came your way a year later, maybe less than a year, I mean, was there any hesitation about playing a lawyer again? Um, no, I, the character to me wasn't a lawyer. That's you know, when I read yeah. the pilot, um, right. she was so interesting to me. And yes, she goes in, back into law, but to me, she was this, she had such a story and it was so um, interesting how the question of sink or swim and how do I go forward and the idea of what people think of you all the time. And 
I just find her incredibly fascinating to play. Yeah. Um, that it didn't actually occur to me. And did the role come to you as an offer, or was it something that you had to meet on? No, it was an offer. Um, it was an offer after after two actresses turned it down. <laughs> Which is always sort of a backhanded compliment. You think, like, am I just sloppy seconds? Like, what? Um, you should thank those actresses. But, but the, whenever I tell the right, tease the writers about it and, and Ridley Scott about it, they're like, you were always our first choice. The studio wanted a bigger name or whatever it is. Um, but my, my agent said a great thing to me. Um, cause I said, I love this, but, uh, you know, it was, we were literally waiting to see if someone passed mm. before I could say yes to it. And I said, it feels a little backhanded. Like it doesn't feel like, Ooh, we're going to embrace Julietta Margulies for this role. Um, and she said, you know, when the audience sees it, they're never going to know who passed on it. Yeah. And that's what you have to remember, you know, because our egos are also fragile. So do I wish it had just been an offer for me? Of course, in a way, but in a certain way. What's great about it is that you realize, as the writers say to me anyway, we can't imagine it being any other way. So, and then you get to create what it is after, you know, doing the pilot. So I, I don't know, in, in, in a way I was glad about it because yes, it was, it was a direct offer, but not, but indirectly. <laughs> I didn't have to audition. <laughs> And it's interesting. I went back and watched the pilot fairly recently, and it's it's such a good pilot, and so much is already set in place that pays off. You know, later in the season, maybe even years later. Yeah. Uh, what was it that it, that was initially attracted you to this character? Did you know the arc she was going on? Um, no. What's interesting is I was just having a meeting with my brilliant writers yesterday, and uh, Robert King just. Uh, admitted to me that he actually has known all along what what the demise of my what the end of this character once the show is over would be that he has a a real ending in mind and I was like don't tell me because <laughs> I feel like I have to keep it fresh and keep yeah. I don't you know I never want to play the end of a scene so um, but I I. I found it so interesting because, and, and I, I'm not one to, I want to put this eloquently, but um, gossip to me is incredibly toxic and cruel, um, which is why I don't go on the internet. And I've, I, you know, I think we're in a very tough age right now with um, anyone being able to have an opinion and forgetting that there's a human being on the other side reading that or um, that who knows what this person maybe has never left their house in the past five years and, you know, is a hoarder and sitting on a stack of newspapers while they're writing, she sucks, you know. It's too easy to throw stones and I'm too thin-skinned to read them, so I choose not to. That being said, I was a watcher of Silda Spitzer. Mm. Um, it was a big deal in New York when that went down. Uh, and you couldn't help but watch because it was on the news 24-7. It was just, you know, you'd go to the gym and there was this face. And her face hit me so hard before I ever got the script. This sort of, she looked like, let, let me be swallowed up. A whole, just a sinkhole right now and let me out of here. And I remember thinking, why are you there? Why are you standing there? And this idea that what happens in the green room when they leave that podium and what happens to these women? And it was at the time of the pilot, it was happening over and over again. It was nonstop. Elizabeth Edwards and, and um, Jennifer, oh, I'm going to forget her name. 
South Carolina. Huh? Oh, oh, oh. oh, the, the, the Argentinian mistress. Yes, with the Argentinian. Sanford. Thank you. Nice. Jenny Sanford. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, and, and I had read her book. So it was, it was very much in the media. So I don't want to say I was, um, well, I was kind of fascinated. I was fascinated with these, they're all strong women, incredibly mm -hmm. strong women. And yet they put themselves in these incredible situations with these men. And so when the pilot came to me, I was just so excited that somebody was writing about it. And I thought, this is going to capture people's interest. This is interesting. Um, the actual scandal isn't. Yeah. What's interesting is, is we need to know who these women are afterwards. So I was thrilled. And I'm listen, any network show that wants to make a woman a female, the, the, the lead of their show, you know, I applaud it. I think it's... <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I, I mean, I want to... You know, we need to support women being just as valuable as men in this industry. And again, another amazing ensemble. Yeah. Uh, no holes in the infield there. Um, the chemistry you have with everyone on the show is, is really fantastic. Was it, did it happen naturally or was it right off the bat you found yourself clicking with these people? I mean, Alicia, Oh, it was right off the yeah. bat. I mean, pretty much... You know, when you're doing a pilot, I, the joke of television, I always, I have, my heart goes out to the writers because they write the pilot. It might take them a year, two years, sometimes 10 years, and then it gets made and then it gets picked up and they have a week to write <laughs> one episode, you know, and, and it's a, it's a high pressure job. I mean, I actually just said to Robert King yesterday, because we were talking about next season and I said, I know you and I know you're already panicking that next season won't be as good as the season we just had. How do we top it? And what I want to say to you is you already did it. So let's make next season different because that's the only option we have. We don't have an option to top that. We're not a soap opera that's going to start, you know, killing off a character a week or it's just not our fabric. Um, so take that off for yourself and make it approach it differently or, mm -hmm. but don't put the pressure on because that's just, there's no human, you can do it on Breaking Bad because Breaking Bad, they do eight episodes a year. So they can do that, but we have 22 to fill and you just can't do it. It would be, it's just not, no one would tune mm -hmm. in after a while or we would just be the joke of the, you know, industry. So I hope he heard me because I can tell he's panicked. <laughs> you don't seem panicked. You're you're fine. No, because it's going to be what it's going to be, yeah. and all I can do is my best. And you know, I, I'm a producer on the show now, and I and I I always feel like I I'm their eyes and ears on the East Coast and on the set because they're the writers' room is on the West Coast, and. The most important thing to me is that everyone comes to work and does their best and that everyone is happy and comfortable. Mm -hmm. I think you do your best work when you feel really at home on a set, um, which is a luxury of television. Because in movies, you know, you don't know the crew. I know my crew so well that I can, I trust them and I can do whatever, whatever the, the moment calls for because I feel so safe. Um, so I just want, I'm not worried about it. I just want it to stay truthful to her, her character, because, you know, they'll tell you it's the, it's the journey, it's the education of Alicia, that's what they call it. And so it's sort of through her eyes that you see this world and how she's changing. And I have to just stay, oh, hope that they stay true to her and not make it event television, because it just can't always be an event. You know, it's not life. Uh, yeah, you can't kill Will every week. 
Uh, speaking of which, um, oh, when well. did you learn he would be leaving and how, I mean, not only as a, you know, a person who works with Josh Charles, yeah. but the character of Lisha, uh, you know, how, how did you deal with that news? You know, um, Josh had an interesting deal at CBS, which was a, um, two years at a time. So he could choose to leave if he wanted. And I, I understand that it's hard when you sign away your life for eight years. You know, you don't, I mean, it's just a little daunting. Um, so his contract was up at the end of last season. Not this, yeah, we haven't finished this. The end of last season. And um, I got a phone call from the King saying, we had about three more episodes to shoot that season, season four. And they said, we just want to let you know Josh isn't coming back. And we haven't been given enough time to properly write for a goodbye for the character. And I, I was so upset. <laughs> and I said, wait, 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 wait. Um, we have to rectify the situation. There's got to be a way around this. And they said, well, he doesn't want to renew his contract. And that's, you know, we have to respect that. And I said, can you give me a minute? And I called Josh. And I said, Josh, I get it. But what if, you know, the truth is, and they'll admit to this, the writers had a different storyline that due to different casting last year couldn't happen. And so a storyline was dropped. And Josh's character was not written for enough last year, last season. And I got his frustration. I totally understood that. And I called him and I said, what if they could write for you? And I know you don't want to do 22, but what if you did 15? And we really gave your character a proper arc to leave the show rather than, what are you just going to like go on the elevator, go down and never come back? Like, how is that going to happen? <laughs> and um, he said, you know, no one approached me that way. I would do 15 if they promised to write for me. So then I called them back and I said, what if, could you write for him for 15? And they said, yeah, we would write. That's a great idea because then we could do these sort of chunks of five where it becomes, mm -hmm. you know, like these arcs that go in and out. And, um, and then, and then it just all worked out. And the next thing I knew, I got a phone call saying he's going to do 15. And just so you know, we feel after a lot of meetings, the best way to say goodbye to this character so that your character isn't continually pining after him is to kill him. <laughs> <laughs> They killed him for and you. And I said, is Josh okay with that? And they said, he loves the idea. He thinks it's great. Yeah. And then they said, we have, to, we have to pass it by CBS because they have to okay any main character dying or whatever. And Nina really? Tassler thought it was genius. And they're so supportive of the show. And then, then we had to keep it a secret. And I kept, Josh and I kept it a secret um, from the whole crew and the whole cast and everyone. There was only about four of us that knew up until he died in episode 15 of this season. So up until about the 10th episode, mm. because it's such a big secret to have to ask people to hold. Um, and I think my proudest accomplishment of our company was when the Wall Street Journal put out this article this year that said, if only Congress <laughs> could keep a secret as well as the good wife. <laughs> Which I thought was really, you know, I mean, cause you're talking about 150 people on the yeah. set. And they all, uh, you have to go home and tell your wife that, oh my God, all day long, you know, so that's another 150 people at least that all know. And then the, so it's a lot of people and, and the background artists, I mean, they, they were there the day, you know, and nobody squealed. And that's, yeah. I think a great thing. Uh, 
Sure. Especially with social media and whatnot. Yeah, exactly. That's what shocks me. Uh, I do want to take some questions from the audience. Oh, Um, I love a question. And uh, I apologize if I butcher anyone's name in advance. Um, I feel your pain. Um, This is Amber. Um, Actually, I think it says the question is for Juan, but I think you just didn't have enough time to write Juliana. That's great. Uh, what is the biggest risk personally and professionally you feel you've ever taken? Probably walking away from ER. Mm. That was probably my biggest risk. I mean, I guess financially it was, but um, yeah, that was probably a risk. Uh, question from Nancy. Um, do you find much difference between casting in New York and casting in L.A.? Anything general or specific? That's a great question. Yeah. I do find a difference. Um, uh, in New York, they go to the theater. <laughs> and, uh, and that's a testament to our casting. Mark Sachs, who casts our show, goes and sees every play. And that's why even the smallest roles on our show are so nuanced. They're these incredible stage actors. Um, I remember when I first came out here, I was just visiting and my agent to- told me... Um, <laughs> to get something episodic because no one was going to come and see me in a play, <laughs> which I understand. I mean, there's not, you know, the theater isn't as easy to come by here as it is in, in New York. So, um, uh, but in New York, I, I, I think a casting directors go and see everything. It's yeah. just a little different. Whereas here, I think they watch everything. Uh, question from Diane. Um, you always seem so relaxed. Even if the character you play is often under the gun or stressed, how do you do that? I, Juliana, seem relaxed, yes. or... Sorry, it says you as oh, an actress. As an actress, so I always seem so relaxed. Oh, thank you. I do. <laughs> um, I'm not always. I think, it, I think I've, I've grown into being relaxed. Um, I think you get to a certain age <laughs> and you realize, like, I mean, what's there to be... Ner- you know, in my own life... I remember when there were some lies printed about me in some newspaper or whatever, and my husband, who's a lawyer, said to me, and tomorrow there'll be something else in the paper and that'll go away. (laughs) It's like, what are you going to do? It's there anyway. You know who you are. I think with as you get more secure in who you are as a human being, um, at least for me, I've I realized that um, if it's not life and death, then then there's nothing to get my knickers in a twist over. You know, <laughs> I forgot to mention your husband is a lawyer. Mm. Uh, he calls does... himself a recovering lawyer. Oh, he doesn't practice? No, he doesn't practice anymore. Oh, okay. I mean, he still goes and takes the exam once a year just yeah. to keep his license, but. Um, uh, no, he runs a company now. Okay, so you can't use him as a consultant. Oh yeah, um, sure you I do. Please, <laughs> he clerked for a federal judge for a year. He was in a he was a Wall Street litigator for six years. So I I can I do I try not to because he loves the show and I don't want to ruin it for him. You know, but there there are moments <laughs> no spoilers. Where, where I just feel so stupid sometimes with the cases and and the legal speak that I'll just say, can you just explain this in layman terms because I'm it's going over my head, and he he's very good at explaining things (laughs) so he doesn't want to know what's going to happen on the show he doesn't i mean he'll he knew about josh because josh is a dear friend of ours and and the 
me and my husband and Josh and his wife, the four of us were always having dinner together. So it wasn't like we could keep this secret from our spouses. So they knew. Um, but he still loves watching it. And, yeah. and I try not to tell him little things, you know. But because I, and it's also why I don't make him study lines with me. I don't, I just don't, I find it, I don't want him to think it's a, it's a job for him too, yeah. you know. <laughs> uh, speaking of, um, Scott has a question about what do you like to do for fun when you're not working? Hey, Scott. What do I like to do for fun? <laughs> um, well, I'm a big lover of games. I love playing a good game. Um, we have a house that's in upstate New York, and my favorite thing to do on weekends is cook a big meal, invite everybody over, and then play games. And wine. <laughs> I like to drink some wine. <laughs> Who doesn't? Um, but yeah, I love, I love the huts. We have a house in the Hudson Valley and it's, it's where the culinary Institute is. And so all the food, everything's organic and fresh and gorgeous. And I don't get to cook during the week because I'm usually always working. So it's just, I, I love knowing that my son is growing up, at least knowing his mom cooks on weekends. <laughs> <laughs> I certainly don't cook during the week, but yeah, that's what I love to do the most games and friends and parties. I have a question from Deirdre. Um, wants to know, what's the greatest gift that the theater environment has given you? Wow. Um, I guess allowing me to be on their stage would be the greatest gift. Um, tell you, it's such an interesting thing, the theater. I, I remember being so nervous doing John Robin Bates's play, The Ten Unknowns, and, and thinking, no one is gonna like this play. It's too esoteric, it's too out there. And after opening night, people just went nuts over it. Um, they went nuts over it. And I was having such a hard time figuring out this character and trying to understand what we were doing. And to have it received in such a positive light was a real gift because I think it would have scared me from going back to the stage right away. Uh, question from Colleen. Uh, what are a few things you know now you wish you had known when you started the acting mm, biz? That's a great question. A lot of things. Um, I wish I had known to, to trust myself more and not depend so much on other people's opinions. That's the main thing. Um, kind of along those lines, but Anita wants to know what's the best piece of acting advice you've ever received? I've ever received? Yes. Oh. <clears throat> oh. <laughs> well, I tell you, um, I had this wonderful teacher uh, named Harold DeFelice, who's since passed, but he, um, he used to tell me to put on a Betty Davis movie and mute it and not look and see what the title of the movie was and come back the next day and tell him the title of the movie and what it was through her body language. And it was the first time it hit me so hard and um, how every little movement means something. And what we do as human beings in our bodies, you know, um, Alicia stands very upright. She's always up, she's a good girl, so she's always like this. And when we went through this um, sort of horrible death of Will Gardner and then the day after where she's searching to find an answer about this phone call she got from him, um, 
I just heard him in my head and I started to slouch and there was just no way she could hold herself up. And I assume no one notices because it's not for anyone to notice. It's just my job to create this feeling. But I get this phone call from my mother and she said, oh, honey, your body language, I got it. You know, and I said, Mom, Mom, thank you. Because honestly, I never expect anyone to notice that. And if you do your job right, you know, hopefully actually you don't notice, but you walk out going, what was different or what was... But it's those little things, you know, it's it's the raise of an eyebrow or, or the slump of a shoulder that says so much. And Alicia is a woman of not a lot of words, you know, so I find it... Um, I think it was the best advice I ever got from an acting teacher was to watch body language. And it's also why I love living in New York City and riding the subway because, oh my God, you can tell a whole story from watching someone's body language. Um, so I guess that was a long way of speaking. <laughs> of listening listen to your mother. Yeah, <laughs> right. Uh, and can you tell us everything that's going to happen next season? That we can. <laughs> that was a good segue. <laughs> I actually don't know anything. I know a few things, but I won't tell you. Uh, what, where would you like to see Alicia go? Or, or you just want to see where the writers take her? Oh, a little bit of both. I mean, I, I really trust the writers. I feel like they, they're very... Um, Strangely, what they end up doing oftentimes is reading my mind, and I guess it's how I play a scene. Or, and then they, they, they say they learn so much from dailies of how to write the next script. Um, apparently, Alicia had a lot more uh, to say in the pilot, but they loved how silent I was so much that they kept taking lines out um, because they felt it was more effective. Mm. Uh, but I, I would love to see Alicia... I'd like to see her get out of Floric Agos. Um, I don't think she's in a healthy partnership with him, with um, Carrie Agos. Mm. I think that it's not healthy because it's always becoming about money and it's a slippery slope and I think she's feeling it. So I personally would like to see her run for president. (laughs) (laughs) But we know that's not gonna happen. Do we know that? I don't know, but I, I would like to see her sort of meet her husband head to head on a yeah. political level. I think that would be interesting um, to sort of end the series, you know, with him maybe a little bit down here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but I don't have much say there. Well, I, I also do want to see her in therapy, but I don't think that's going to happen. <laughs> Actually, no, she, she, that would help, don't you think? I keep saying to them, I said it yesterday, I'm like, Alicia needs to go to therapy. <laughs> she cannot have a relationship until she goes to therapy. But um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure they're open to that. I think it's very Sopranos for them. Yeah. And they really try not to go there. And it was one of my favorite things about when you would watch Tony Soprano in therapy. It was the best, you know? <laughs> I mean, anyway, I, th- I feel like she's so bottled up that she's not going to say everything she feels to anyone who knows her for fear of looking weak or not a good girl. So I want her to be able to just scream and say, fuck, in therapy, you know? I want her to... 
well, get it out on CBS, but no, true, <laughs> true. But she could say frick. <laughs> Something like that. Anyway, that's what I'd like for her. Well, I can't wait to see what happens next. I can't wait to see what you do next. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much for being here this afternoon. Thanks for having me. Thank you guys. You guys great questions. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the SAG After Foundation's Conversations podcast. If you appreciated what you heard, please support us with a review or donation and reach out to us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at SAG After Found. We'd love to hear from you.